I was thinking about doing the preacher thing and trying it again, but we'll, uh, we'll move on. How about that? Uh, let me pray for you all today. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we can come together. Lord, I'm so thankful when we can gather together as your body. I love Sunday mornings, getting to come together and seeing my brothers and sisters and just rejoicing with them, just praising you with them, God. So I'm thankful for this time that we can be gathered together around you, around a love for you, around your love for us, God. So I'm just, today I'm, I'm thankful. Lord, I want to pray this morning that uh, as we go through our time together, that our hearts would turn to you, God, that we would draw closer to you. I pray that you would draw close to us, Lord, as we know you have. Um, Lord, and I just pray that this time would be a blessing not only to us, but also to you. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased with our worship, that you would, um, that it would be a, a fragrant aroma to you, Lord. Um, and we just, we just pray that we would know you more as a result of our time together today. Lord, so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I, uh, I actually am a little unprepared this morning. I got the privilege of going down and teaching Sunday school this morning, so um, I got beat in a board game by by a couple kids. So anyway, um, but so I had a good time. But um, as far as announcements goes, does anybody have anything that's not in our bulletin that needs to be added this morning? We got a we got an 80th birthday here. Somebody knows who that is, and I'm hearing, is he here? We have an 80th birthday. Is that Virgil Miles? Oh my goodness! Well, happy birthday to Virgil. I didn't even realize today was your birthday. This is news to me. This is a good announcement. You know what? We don't get to celebrate 80th birthdays together very often. Can we sing happy birthday to Virgil? James, you might mute me here. In hindsight, I see Virgil in that picture. Like, after you said, I can, I see it. Virgil, you're a good-looking kid. Do you know that? Oh. Well, happy birthday, Virgil. That's, uh... He's two years older than me. Okay. Exactly? Okay. I was going to say, today's, today's yours, too, and I missed that, so... Okay. All right. All right. Well... All right, well, that's a good announcement. Thank you. Um, anything else that needs to be announced this morning? Yes. Um, so Praise in the Park will be next Sunday, July 4th. Um, and I don't remember what time it is starting. But we have been asked if we would serve hot dogs. So if you would be willing and able to help serve and cook hot dogs over there, um, I know, yeah, you can contact Alan. Um, he will be kind of heading that up for us. So if you want to contact him, let him know you'd be willing and able to help. I'm sure they would take all the help they could get. So that will be next Sunday on the 4th. Any other announcements this morning? 
Okay, well, how about prayer requests? I wrote down a couple. Um, got to go to a wedding yesterday, and I guess this is kind of an announcement and a prayer request, but uh, Sarah was Dudek. Um, she and her then fiance were married yesterday. So if you continue to pray for Sarah and Brendan, I know that they'd appreciate that. And not only would they appreciate it, they need that. Um, so pray for these young families that are just starting out. So uh, pray for Brendan, pray for Sarah, uh, pray for the Hill family. Um, also, uh, we have several folks who, who, have, um, who have been sick, some of them COVID-related, some of them not. If you would pray for our people, I know uh, I know that that's needed, and I know that they would love to know that people are praying for them. We have several who are sick right now, so um, pray for your church family. Is there anything else that we could pray about together this morning? Got it. That's Judy Scarborough. Okay, so if you pray for Judy, it sounds like her cancer's back after she'd been in remission for several years, and um, sounds like it's coming back pretty aggressive. So pray for Judy. Anybody else this morning? Okay, now let's pray. Marge is having a procedure done on Tuesday so to re-embed her pacemaker. Okay, so, so pray for Marge um, as she's going in to have that, that uh, pacemaker re-embedded. So, okay, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you today, and um, Lord, I, I know I, I almost always start by saying thank you, and I don't, that's not by accident, Lord. I want to thank you again that even... Even in the face of adversity, even whenever there are health struggles, as there are for many, um, Lord, we can come to you and we can just thank you for being good. Uh, we can thank you for loving us. We can thank you for coming near, Lord. And uh, I, I certainly want to do that today also. I just want to thank you, God, because you are good. You do love us and you've, you've, you've beat our biggest enemy. You've conquered sin. You've conquered death, Lord, and you've given us You've given us life through Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Um, we just recognize the awesome God you are this morning. So, Father, we, we thank you. Um, Lord, we also do, though, we want to come and we want to ask you, Lord. We want to bring our request to you. We want to ask you for, for healing, Lord. And in the case of many of our folks who are struggling with this virus right now, God, I want to pray that you would heal them. Um, Father, as, as the months and really over well over a year now, as this time has drug on and we continue to talk about this COVID-19 virus, uh, I think we often forget that you have the ability to put an end to it in a moment's notice. So, Father, I just uh, I, I, I want to pray against this virus. Lord, I want to pray that you would come and that you would stop it. Lord, I know, I also trust that you can use it for your good purpose, and I know that you are working in all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. 
So, Lord, we trust you regardless of what you do. But, Father, if we can come and we can bring our wishes, if we can be so bold as to ask you, Lord, we ask that you would put an end to this. Um, Father, and we just trust you in it. Lord, um, I also want to pray for those um, who are part of our fellowship specifically. God, I want to pray for Marge today as she's preparing to go in for this operation uh, Tuesday. God, I pray that you would give her a peace of mind as she goes in for this. Lord, I pray that it was, the operation would be successful. Um, I just And I just pray for patience and peace and endurance as she goes through this. Um, Father, and likewise, I'd, I'd like to pray for Judy uh, Scarborough as she's got this, this awful news about this cancer coming back. Lord, so um, we pray for healing. Um, Lord, I just ask you to heal her physically, mentally, spiritually. God, I just pray that you would come and that she would know your presence and um, Lord, if that means that you just remove this cancer from her body, uh, we would celebrate that. If it means that you come and you draw her near to you and she, she just professes faith in you, God, we, we give you all the praise for that. So, Lord, we just ask for healing. Um, Father, and uh, I, I guess I don't know what else to say other than just to ask you for healing. Lord, um, I thank you. I thank you for the good news for the good news we have, for the many people who, who have remained healthy. God, I know that uh, oftentimes we, we get focused on the sick and we, we forget that you have sustained many of us in our health. And Lord, I thank you for that. And I pray that that would continue. I thank you for the celebration of this marriage that we many of us got to witness yesterday with Sarah and Brendan. God, I pray for their marriage. Lord, uh, I don't want to stop praying for marriages. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would help them to draw closer together. But more importantly, I pray that you would draw them close to you and that you would use this union for your glory. God, I thank you for their desire to, to live a, a life where they're joined together in a one flesh marriage, God. And I just pray that you would, you would use that, that you would give them strength, that you would give them endurance for the days and years to come. Father, I pray for this time. Lord, let us focus on you. Let us know you. Lord, just, I pray that this time would be edifying to all of us. Lord, and I pray that it would be pleasing to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together. So would you all stand with us?
You guys have no idea how good Steve is at his job. Um, if you look in your, I was supposed to do community meditation last week, and um, what I'm going to talk about today has to do with identity and us not having a clue who we are. So if you look in your bulletin, you'll see that I'm Marty Coaston, and you look up here, and I'm Marty Coaston. So just so we're all on the same page, um, I believe that. Uh, and this was intentional, by the way. Steve is not messed up. He, Steve does not mess up. He's always on top of things. Uh, <laughs> I believe that we have an identity crisis going on in, our, in this country. The problem is that many of us find our identity in the wrong places, and we also identify others based on things that God doesn't really care about or that really doesn't matter to God. I believe that my view of who I am is right behind in importance of my view of who Jesus is. Now, I don't know if you'll argue with that or not. It's very important, our view of who Jesus is. But who I see myself to be, who I am, my identity is really important. Um, if you were asked to describe yourself, what would you say? What would be your most important identifier? Um, Sometimes it's a name, but think about that for a, a, who do you see yourself as? Who are you? The first question God asked man was, where are you? This question is, who are you? Does it have to do with your family? Does it have to do, <clears throat> I'm sure if a, lot of, a lot of men I know, when they meet other men out on vacation or somewhere, they'll say, what do you do? So who they are is what they do. 
uh, so they're occupational a lot of times. Sometimes it's a physical trait. Um, uh, you know, if we have a, a good physical trait or a bad physical trait, in our view, uh, sometimes it's a, porm- a performance issue. If we perform well, then um, that's who we are. Uh, some people never get past high school because they were a good athlete in high school or whatever they were, <clears throat> and that's become their identity. Well, in reality, what happens later on is we lose some of those talents. And so then what happens to your identity if it's tied up in, in something else? I also believe uh, that what we consider to be our most important identifier will be a major influence on what our actions will be. For example, if my identifier was big muscles, then I would be working out more. So you can see that's not my major identifier is big muscles. But people can get caught up, and I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying that can be, you know, you know how we identify ourselves, what's important to us. In Scripture, uh, what, what got me thinking about this originally is we're studying the book of James in Sunday school. And it starts out with uh, describing, James is describing himself <clears throat> to the people that he's writing to. And does anybody know what that description is? How does James describe himself? It says, James, a white man. James, a Jew. James, a, James, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. That's his identifier. So as he wrote this letter, this is who James sees himself to be. Uh, if you look at the book of Jude, Jude starts out, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he also says, and a brother of James in there. What I find interesting about that identifier for those two men is they were half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude. That's not what they said. Why would Jude say a servant of Jesus and a brother of James? He didn't say in a brother of Jesus. So James's or Jude's identifier was not his bloodline with Jesus. It was his, him being a servant of Jesus. That's who James was. And guess what? What did James and Jude do? They served Jesus. That's the way they saw themselves, and that's where their actions uh, were led because of that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, when, when uh, we've had a few baptisms lately, uh, but when this faith journey begins with us, or one part of it, when we get baptized, um, we join Jesus, or we identify ourselves with him in his death and resurrection. We die to ourselves; we are raised to a new life, but we are not identifying with Christ in baptism. Other identities that we have, like our culture makes such a big deal about right now, of being male or female, rich or poor, black or white, those things really are not that important compared to our identity in Christ. And we get so caught up in identifying people based on some outward appearance or something else that's not really that important to God. So that's where I come up with, I think we have an identity crisis. Even when we recognize uh, who we are to God is what's most important. We may still believe a lie about how he views us. So, um, so here's a, 
things that we might believe is, and, and you, you may have been going through a tough time or something, and you may believe he doesn't care. You may, may believe he doesn't uh, love you. You may be, believe uh, that he views you as a failure. So that's, so we talk about self-image problems and identity issues. When you think the creator of the universe doesn't love you or care about you, uh, that, can, that can be a real problem. And I know people going through trouble, that would be uh, something that could, could uh, slip in there. So here's a, here's a rhyme, I guess. Here's a clue of God's view of you. Here's a clue of God's view of you. Jesus willingly suffered and died for you. John 1.12 says, that Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. According to God, when we believe and receive Jesus, we become a child of God. This should be at the top of the list of where we find our true identity, being a child of God. The big question is then, who do you say that you are, and how does that line up with who God says that you are? As we, pre- as we prepare to take communion, um, we have a song that we're going to play. Listen to these words of truth where each of us can find peace and value as we agree with who God says that we are.
As these elements come around, if you would hold them, we will receive them together. Take the bread. Let's pray. Father, God, we come to you now and we thank you. Lord, we thank you for who you say we are. That through the broken body of your son, Jesus, God, we, we know that we're forgiven because you've declared us forgiven. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take and eat. You take the juice. Father, God, and likewise, we, we thank you for your blood. We thank you for the blood of Jesus, which was shed for the remission of sins. God, we thank you. We praise you. Because you declared us forgiven, you declared us sons and daughters of the King. So, Lord, we thank you because we are who you say we are. Lord, we thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Take and drink. Let's stand together and continue to worship in song.
children would like to go to children's church they can do so at this time and if you would like to open your bible with me we will be in luke chapter 10 today luke chapter 10 and let's pray together before we dive into this word heavenly father god i um, we come to you today and we We ask what we just sang. God, we ask that you would take our hearts, that you would seal it. Um, God, I pray that you would secure our hearts. 
that we would know you, that we would, we would experience your goodness, your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your love in our lives. God, I pray that we would experience it and we would be sealed in who you are. We would be sealed in your grace, in your forgiveness, and in your love. God, I, I know that that's only possible as you come. So, Father, I pray today that you would send the Spirit. I pray that even now, God, that we would just, we would know your presence in a very real way, that you would just come and that you would dwell in us and dwell amongst us, God. We ask that you would come, Father. So um, as we open this word, I pray that you would guide us, that you would direct us, Father. Teach us what it means uh, to live faithfully as your followers. Teach us what it means to live lives as evangelists. Teach us what it means to know you, to love you, and to share the good news that we have of Jesus. Lord, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, um, today is our last week that we are going to be looking at this Rooted series. Um, we've made it to the end of, of this series. So in case, I know some of you like to know where we're going to be. Well, over the next next several weeks, we're going to begin to look at the book of Titus. So if you would like to look ahead, that's where we're going to be over the next several weeks. Um, but today we have our last week of this Rooted series, the last week of this. And in and, and celebration of this Rooted series, um, I, I got an interesting phone call early this week from Lisa. She's not in here, so that, that makes it perfect to talk about her. Alan, don't tell her. Um, so she, she called and she said, well, hey, I've got these pillows um, I've got these pillows that they say, they say rooted on them. Um, she couldn't remember exactly what they said, but it turns out they say stay rooted. Um, and the reason I'm telling you about this, you'll, you'll find out in just a minute. But uh, she, she said, I've got these pillows and, you know, we were going to use them for a fundraiser for the source at one point, but then we weren't able to have the fundraiser. So I've just got these pillows and I would like to give them away. And she said, I thought it might be a good tie with a rooted series since it says stay rooted. She said, you're welcome to give them away if you want. So now you're all like, you're going to give me pillows today. That's right, I'm going to give you pillows today. Um, I have four. I have four, and I'm not going to let you pick if you want them or not. Instead, I'm going to play a little game because I, I know most of you pretty well, I think. I know a lot of you reasonably well, at least. I'm getting to know you all more and more as time goes on, and you all know me well enough to now know, well, I don't care if I embarrass you too much. So, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little game, and I want to know who in the room has been a born-again Christian the longest. Like, we have some people with a legacy of faith in here, so I want to know who's been a Christian the longest. And I'll start. I've been a born-again believer for about 21 years. For about 21 years. Anybody longer than 21 years? All right, somebody's going to... You don't have to tell me your age, but I want to know who's, who's the longest here. Y'all got to play this game. Well, okay... Fair, how long have you been a believer in Jesus? Anybody beat 93 years? No? <clears throat> okay. So what are we talking then? 75? Anybody beat 75 years as a believer? No? What's I'm going to cut out, but I'm going to have to do it. These are your prize. Um, stay rooted. You've been rooted for 75 years. We want to. <clears throat> well, 
Well, there's two, but I've got two more, so I want to do something else, and I want to ask, who has been a born-again believer for the shortest amount of time? Who's the newest believer in the room? I'll start. 21 years. Anybody less than 21 years? All right, I got two hands over here. I got Gabe and Leanne, who, which, Leanne, I know you were baptized about a year ago now, right? Less than a year ago. Gabe, longer or shorter than a year? Okay. 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 Well, I said born again believer. I guess I technically didn't say baptized believer. So, longer in a year, shorter in a year. So, who... Who's winning this thing? I'll let mom decide. Who wins? Okay. <laughs> well, then we're going to encourage our newer believers also to stay rooted. So congratulations. You, you win the prize for the day. <clears throat> okay. Well, now that I've done my best game show host impersonation... Um, I'll get, I'll get to this, because we are finishing up our Rooted series today, okay? So, let's see if I can get back on track. Um, what we want to be, we've been talking about what we want to become, what we want to be as a church, and what, what I've told you from the beginning of this series is that we want to be a body of believers who proclaim Christ, empowering all people to become mature followers of Christ through the wisdom of the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to grow into. And we've talked about how we get there, right? We've talked about these disciplines that are to be ingrained in who we are. Not just these lists of things that we do, but disciplines to be ingrained in who we are as believers, who we are as a church. Right? So the first week we talked about prayer. We talked about this exchange of wishes where we lay down our desires and we pick up God's desires. We talked about the ministry of the word and how, really, if you know Jesus, you have a part to play in the ministry of the word. Like, to share the good news, to share God's word with those around you. And we're going to talk about that more here in just a moment. We talked about a love for one another and how the church is to be defined by a radical love for one another. How we should be growing together as a body. We talked about worship and how worship is more than just music. We talked about worship as, as a life lived in sacrifice to Jesus. A life laid down for Jesus. And that's what true worship is. But today we have one more route. One more to get to. Okay, And again, um, we could spend an entire series unloading this one. Just like we could with any of these. But today we're going to talk about evangelism. Evangelism. If we're going to grow into this kind of a church, the kind of church that proclaims Christ, we better be proclaiming Christ. Okay? Now, that might sound incredibly obvious, but um, we hear the word evangelism a lot, right? At least most of you know that we are an evangelical church. Evangelical actually has the word evangelism, like, tied to it. It's the same root, so most of you can probably pick that up. But what in the world is evangelism? What is evangelism. Well, um, I typically don't go to the dictionary to figure things out because I, I don't think the dictionary always does the best job of defining words, as funny as that sounds, um, especially whenever we start talking about what we as the church mean by certain words. So whenever we talk about evangelism, though, I actually think the Oxford Dictionary did a really good job of defining this term. So I'm going to use it today. It said that evangelism is the spreading of the Christian gospel by public preaching or by personal witness. 
Okay? The spreading of the Christian gospel through public preaching or personal witness. And I think that's a pretty good definition for evangelism. But it actually raises another question if we're going to start defining terms. What is the gospel? If it's talking about spreading the Christian gospel, what is the Christian gospel? Now, for most of you who are believers, you're like, okay, we know what the gospel is, right? It's the good news about Jesus. But, okay, what, what is that good news? What's funny is you actually start talking to people about what is the gospel, you get all sorts of answers. All sorts of answers. So I want to dial in on what I mean whenever I say the Christian gospel, and I'm going to actually steal from the Apostle Paul. Okay, He, he gave what, what a lot of people call this is the simple gospel. So this is about as simple as it gets. Okay, So I want to share this with you from 1 Corinthians. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. And it says, Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters... The gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand, by which you are being saved. So he says, I want to make this gospel clear to you. Because it's the gospel that you're standing on, it's the one by which you were saved. I just want to make it clear that this is the gospel we're talking about. Okay? And he says, if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures... That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Verse 5 goes to talk on about more appearances and how Jesus appeared to more than 500 others after he was raised. So, if we're using that as, as our definition for the gospel, if we're using that to define the gospel, then what we're talking about whenever we talk about the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. So, in the simplest terms... That's the gospel. Jesus died for sins, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. That's the good news. Okay? So, what we're saying that whenever we talk about evangelism is that it's the declaration of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection through either public preaching or through personal witness. That's what we're doing whenever we evangelize. We're telling people about Jesus' death for our sins, burial, resurrection. That's what we're doing as we evangelize. Okay, maybe an easier way to explain why this is so important is to talk about what evangelism is not. Okay, so I'm just going to give you two quick things that evangelism is not, and hopefully you see the difference here. Evangelism is not simply living a good life or inviting someone to church. Now, those things are good, but that is not evangelism. Okay, evangelism is not just living a moral life, which a lot of people say, well, they'll know I'm a Christian because look at my act, like, like if I live like a Christian. Well, maybe, but probably not. At some point, you have to tell them the good news. You have to tell them the gospel. Okay? Some people will also say, well, I invite them to church, and then the pastor is going to share the good news. Well, that's true. I'm hoping that I make the gospel clear from this platform today. I hope that that happens. But evangelism is not inviting somebody to church. That might be good, but that is not evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the good news, sharing the gospel, either through public testimony or through a private witness. So, that's what evangelism is. Now, okay, I'm, I'm, I promise we're going to get to the text in just a minute, so just stay with me for a second, okay? I tell you guys all the time that I want us at Christian Fellowship Church to be different, like to be fundamentally different. Uh, I say that all the time. I hear an echo. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, man, I... Yeah, anyway, so I often tell you that I want us to be a different I want us to be different. And really, but if we were to evangelize, if we were to be active in evangelism, we would be different. That would make us different. 
Uh, Lifeway Research did this survey that showed that 80% of evangelical Christians, 80% of evangelical Christians know, know that they should share the gospel. Now, first of all, 80% sounds like a big number. Here's the thing. If we are evangelical Christians, I hope more than 80% of us know that we should be sharing the gospel. More than 80% of us. It should be 100% know that we should be sharing the gospel. Four out of five isn't good enough. We need to get to five out of five. So hopefully after today, you know, we need to be sharing the gospel. We need to be sharing the gospel. But they went on and they continued this survey. And it said that 55% of evangelical Christians said that they had not had a spiritual conversation at all in the last six months. 55% of evangelical Christians have not had a spiritual conversation in the last six months. You realize that that's more than half in six months not sharing the gospel. Now, uh, I'm not great at math, but I'm okay at math. Now, let's just say say that these numbers are right. 80% know they're supposed to be sharing the gospel. Only 45% are. What are the other 35% who know they're supposed to be sharing the gospel doing? Why are we not sharing the gospel? Clearly, we know we should be sharing the gospel, so why are we not? And the survey went even further, okay? The survey went even further, and it was that, that these people that they surveyed, only about 20% said that sharing the gospel happened more than twice over the last six months. 20%. That's one out of five shared the gospel more than twice over the last six months. One out of five. Okay, so follow me then, because this is, this is fun. This is where we're going to get into hypotheticals, and I have absolutely no, no data to back up what I'm going to say. So that's real confident, confident, isn't it? Like, I have no data to back this up. But follow me. If Christian Fellowship Church represented 20% of the Christians in our community, and by the way, again, no idea if we do. We may be way less. We may, I have no clue, okay? But if we, if we comprise 20% of the Christians in our community... I hope that we're that 20% that is sharing the gospel. I want us to be the 20% that is sharing the gospel. Now, I hope that that means that really the percentages in our area are going up because I hope other churches are sharing the gospel too. But I want us to be sure that Christian Fellowship Church, that we are evangelizing, that we're telling people about the good news that we have in Jesus, about his death for our sins, about his burial, and about his resurrection. We need to be telling people that Jesus is raised because there's a life in him. So my goal for today is that you know, first of all, that you're called to evangelism. And second, I want to show you how to be effective in that evangelism. I don't want to just say, go evangelize and not tell you what it takes. Okay? Now, I also can't touch on every single scenario. There's no way to do that. And honestly, I don't have an answer for every single scenario. I just don't. All right, But hopefully what we can see are some general things that will help us to be effective in evangelism. So that way we can be different. So let's stand together, let's read God's word, and then we'll look at some different parts to evangelism. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 1. <clears throat> Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, says this. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent, them ahead, uh, he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the, his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, travel bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. 
If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, We are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Y'all are going to have to bear with me a little bit. These sinuses draining aren't a good thing. So, that's our text for today, Luke 10. And what do we learn about evangelism? Well, like I said, hopefully we can see five different parts so that we can know how to be effective in our evangelism. Because if you're like me, you don't want to just go out and tell people about Jesus and have nothing happen. Well, we want to make sure that we're doing it according to God's word so that we see effective evangelism. All right, so first thing we find is that effective evangelism requires apostolic appointment. Effective evangelism requires apostolic appointment. And what I want to make sure I'm clear about is what I mean whenever I say apostolic. Because for many of you, for many of you, you probably have different feelings whenever I even say the word apostolic. Okay? Now, that can carry different connotations. For some of you, you're thinking, okay, Jared, you're getting kind of weird on us now. Um, are you going to start speaking in tongues or something? No, I probably won't. Some of you are thinking, oh, great, he's finally getting a little more charismatic. And no, I just want to be careful and I want to define what I mean whenever I say apostolic. I want to be very clear what I mean. Okay? Because this can carry different connotations. So here, here what we find is that Jesus is sending these workers out. He's sending these evangelists out to send them out to share about the kingdom of God. Okay, And here he sends the 72, or some of your translations may say 70, and I'll explain that here in just a minute. But these people are sent out. Verse 1, it actually says, he sent them. In the Greek, literally what this says is he apostello. Apostello them. That word apostello is where we get our word apostle. It's the same, same place we get the word apostle. Okay, so this word apostello literally means sent out. That's what we mean whenever we say an apostle. We're saying he's one who has been sent out. That's what apostle means. Okay, so whenever you hear the word apostle, we should be thinking one who has been sent out by God. Now, I also want to be clear that I believe that there's a difference between the gift or those who have been called to be apostles, like we find over in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. I believe there's a difference between that, difference between that apostolic um, um, gifting and what we talk about whenever we talk about the apostles. Like, we want to differentiate here, it's the big A apostles, little A apostles, okay? So, there we go. So, that's not what I'm talking about, though. So, I do believe that there is a particular gifting and calling to apostolic ministry. But in the case of being sent out, I believe that all believers, all believers are sent out. Which means all of us have an apostolic aspect to our calling. Every single Christian, every one of us has an apostolic aspect to our calling. Right, this is part of the Great Commission. Part of the Great Commission. First word of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19. It says, go. In other words, Jesus is sending them out. And we talked about this a few weeks ago and how this great commission, while it's given to, the, to Jesus' apostles, they actually they are 
um, representing the entirety of the church at that time. So what he's saying whenever he says go is he's telling the church, go, like go out, go make disciples of all nations. So I believe that that's part of our apostolic calling. Further, if you are a believer, then like we talked about a few weeks ago, you've been made an ambassador for Christ, right? And you remember what we said an ambassador was? An ambassador is an authorized representative. You have been made into an authorized representative of Jesus, which means as we go, we are being sent out by Jesus. So share the gospel, okay? Because here... Jesus, he appoints these 70 or 72 to go ahead of him. And the reason I say 70 or 72 is because scholarship is actually really split on whether the earliest manuscripts say 70 or 72. So, there we go. Easiest answer to this is it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. Whether it was 70 or 72 doesn't make a bit of difference. My preference would be 70 for all kinds of reasons that I'm not going to take the time to share with you right now. If you want to know, I'll share it with you later. But essentially what Jesus is doing by commissioning these these disciples, these followers out, what he is doing is he's saying, look, you go ahead and prepare the way for me. Go ahead and prepare the way for me. And Jesus is bringing the good news to every nation on earth through these 70. And he sends them out in the towns to every town and every place where he was about to go. So Jesus is sending his authorized representatives first out. First of all, we need to see how he's sending them out. He sent them out in pairs. He didn't send them out by themselves to go take on the world. He sent them out in pairs. Well, that's for a number of reasons. First of all, it's through the testimony of two or more that everything can be established. It's not just one person saying, hey, we've got this, person, this guy over here who's the Messiah. No, it's multiple people saying, hey, we have the Messiah. The kingdom has come near. And second, they do this because they can encourage one another. They can build one another up. You're not meant to do it by yourself. You're meant to live the Christian life in community. It's amazing how God's word comes around and comes around, and we're supposed to do this in community. So they're sent out to prepare the way for Jesus. And our job, just like that, is to go ahead of Jesus and prepare the way for him to show up. I tell you guys all the time, all the time, that you can't save anyone. I can't save anyone. And guess what? That's not our job. Our job is to prepare the way for the one who can. That is our task as we're being sent out. But that's why I say this requires an apostolic appointment. First of all, if you don't know Jesus, then how are you going to be sent out by Jesus? You have to know him first to become his ambassador. So you have to know him in his death and his burial and his resurrection before you can proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection. That's our task. And once we've received this grace, then we have been commissioned as his representatives to go and share this good news. So effective evangelism requires our apostolic appointment. Second, effective evangelism requires penetrating prayer. It requires penetrating prayer. And I warn you that prayer and ministry of the word, we're going to come up again and again in this series. And here is prayer. Okay, verse 2, he told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Okay, so as he commissions these 70, what does he tell them to do? Very first thing he says to do. He doesn't say, go come up with a really good mission strategy. That's not the first thing he says. Very first thing he says is pray. Pray. If evangelism isn't drenched, just absolutely bathed in prayer, I have a hard time seeing it becoming effective. 
If you aren't praying for people to come to know Jesus, they're probably not going to come to know Jesus. We need to bathe, absolutely soak evangelism in prayer. So we see here, that's what he tells them to do. He says, pray. But what does he tell them to pray? Well, first of all, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Okay, and here's this picture, right? Here's this landowner. Here's this landowner. It's about harvest time. Crops are about ready to be picked. And he's sitting there and and they're saying, okay, pray to the guy who's in charge. Like the one who has the ability to send out workers. Because in this culture, right, the, the, the landowner would get to send out as many workers into his field as he saw necessary. And he would pay as many as he saw necessary. So if he wanted to send two workers out into his field, he could do that. If he wanted to send 200 workers out into his field, he could do that. So he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest because he's in charge. Actually, did you notice that at the end of that it says, send workers out into his harvest. The harvest itself belongs to him. So talk to him. Go to that guy. Go to the one who's in charge of all of it. And beyond that, beyond that, what he's, the picture here he's building is like a bumper crop, all right? We, I love that I grew up in an agricultural community because you guys get these references, okay? You look out and you see the corn growing, you see the beans growing, and you look out and we can tell, like, corn looks good, right? We just got a whole bunch of rain, maybe too much rain all at once, and crops, crops look good. And you can look out and you can be like, man, that is the best crop I've ever seen in my whole life. I don't know if it is or not right now. I haven't paid attention. But you can look out at harvest time and you can say, man, this is going to be an awesome crop. Corn stalks are 10 feet tall. It's just, it's, it's amazing how tall this crop is right now. Ears are feeling, filling out really good. This looks like the best crop I have ever seen. But there's a problem. You don't have a combine. Huh. How are you going to get that, how are you going to get that crop in? Does the best crop in the world do you any good if you don't have a way to harvest it? No. No. It's going to sit there, and it's going to die, and it's going to rot, because you don't have a way to pick it. Notice that whenever he says pray, he doesn't say pray for a better crop. That's not what he tells him to do. He says pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers, that he would send workers. In other words, pray for a method, pray for the means with which to bring in the crop. Pray for a combine. You all know what the combine is in this picture? It's people. It's you. It's me. We're the ones that are supposed to be going out into the harvest to bring it in. And that's what he tells and pray for. He says, pray that they would send workers into the fields to bring in the harvest. And then I think it's, I I love this. Because the very next verse, you get to verse 3 and it says, now go. I am sending you. (laughs) Isn't that great? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into his harvest. Now go, because I'm sending you. Okay, just think about this for a minute. Remember we talked about prayer, and it was this exchange of wishes. In other words, what's happening here is as, as they pray to the Lord of the harvest, they're saying, God, we want you to send workers. And then you're picking up his desires, his wants, his wishes, and what his want and his wishes is for you to be an answer to your own prayer. Go. That's what he's saying. Pray for workers and then get up and go be a worker. It's like you want an answer. You are the answer to the prayer. Go. Go. And I absolutely love this. Because this is the perfect illustration of this exchange of wishes. Go because he's sending you. And not only is he sending you, he's sending you out like lambs among wolves, he says. See, the truth is sharing the gospel is a dangerous calling. It is a dangerous calling. Um, 
And the, the truth is that it may get increasingly dangerous as we go on. But that's probably why Jesus tells his disciples repeatedly to count the cost. Count the cost. Because it is a dangerous calling. But I can't say it better than the late Vance Havner once said it. He said, any man who takes Jesus Christ seriously becomes a target of the devil. Most church members do not give Satan enough trouble to arouse opposition. I'm going to say that again. Most church members do not give Satan enough trouble to arouse his opposition. Y'all, I'm not saying I want the devil to put a target on us. But what I'm saying is I want to bother him enough that he feels like he needs to. So let's go and make disciples and pray that God would send out workers and then look for the answer to that prayer. Okay? Effective evangelism requires penetrating prayer. And I say penetrating because this should penetrate our hearts and change us. So effective evangelism requires apostolic appointment, penetrating prayer. Third, effective evangelism requires definite discernment. Definite discernment. And I know I'm all about the alliteration today. So definite discernment. All right? First of all, he says not to get distracted by material concerns, right? Don't get distracted by these material concerns. He says don't carry a money bag, don't carry a travel bag, don't carry sandals. Just get up and go. And what Jesus is doing here is creating a sense of urgency. He's saying, look, the kingdom of God's come near. The kingdom of God's come near. Don't wait around. We're not playing at this. The time is short, so go. Don't get burdened down by all these other things that are temporary, by these worldly things. Get up and go. Go tell people about the kingdom. And look, he even emphasizes this more whenever he says, don't greet anyone along the road, because in this culture where they were very hospitable, they were very friendly, you know, it was unheard of to not greet somebody along the road. But he says, you don't have time to be sitting around chatting. Go and make disciples. Go and tell people of the kingdom of God. He's teaching them that the time is short, so we need to be urgent about sharing this good news. Okay, but the reason I say it requires discernment is what we get to in verse 5. Okay, there's this funny passage here that begins in verse 5, and it says, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. So I ask, what in the world is a person of peace? These aren't terms that we use very often. I'm not typically walking around like, yeah, he's a person of peace. Uh, I mean, I, I don't talk like that. I don't know. I don't know any of you who have ever said those words to me either. Maybe it's because you don't think I'm a person of peace, but um, that's, that's odd to most of us. So what is a person of peace? Well, this was actually an Aramaic or a Hebrew expression for a receptive person, for somebody who was willing to receive you, for somebody who was going to be peaceable to you. In other words, it's someone who would listen to what you have to say. It's someone who shows signs of of faith, someone who is willing to hear the good news of the kingdom. But knowing if a person was or was not this person of peace would require discernment on the part of the speaker. It would require you to know whether or not, I don't think it's like, well, I'm going to say peace to this household, and you watch the words come out of your mouth, and it floats around for a minute, and then it may or may not come back. No, that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is you're going to need discernment to know whether or not this is a person of peace. And in the same way, we need to recognize when someone is open to hearing the gospel and when they're not. Now, that doesn't mean there are people we don't share the gospel with. What it means is we make sure that we emphasize those people who are receptive to the gospel. We need to make those disciples. Now, I don't believe that there's ever anyone that we should give up on. I don't believe that for a minute because I believe that God can and has changed some of the most unlikely, what we would deem the most unlikely people to receive the gospel. So it doesn't mean we don't share the gospel or we give up on anyone. 
In other words, but, but what I am saying is that we need to be used discernment in how we, how we prioritize our time and our energy. I think we need to be wise about how we use the gifting that God's given us. Because the truth is, even as you share the gospel with this person who may not be receptive, you may be dropping a seed. You may be somebody who comes along and waters that seed. Or you may be the person who gets to harvest that. You don't know. But what I do know is that God tells us to use discernment, to use wisdom as we proclaim this message of peace. So Jesus teaches here that effective evangelism requires discernment. Okay, So apostolic appointment, penetrating prayer, definite discernment. Fourth, effective evangelism requires divine provision. <laughs> so there goes my alliteration. Um, divine provision. I really wanted to say disbursement, but it didn't really carry the connotation I wanted it to. So um, we'll go with divine provision. Now, I want to be clear that this part, for many of us, can be difficult to apply to our lives. At least directly to our lives, the way that we often think of applying a particular text. Okay, so I want to make this clear that I know that you may be thinking like, well, I'm never going to go into vocational ministry. First of all, I think it's funny when people say that because I said that about 10 years ago and yet here I am. So don't say you will never go into vocational ministry unless you want to go into vocational ministry. Um, I think God has a sense of humor. But even if you aren't, maybe you're thinking I'm never going to be a pastor. It's unlikely that I'll ever be a missionary, like full-time, vocationally, as a missionary overseas. Or uh, It's unlikely that I'm going to do any of those things. Okay, And I understand that. I get that. All right, I understand. But let's see how we apply this. Because if we actually look at the text, I think we get some clarity. All right, What the text says in verse 7, it says, Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer. For the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. And in my opinion, what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of giving what we would call today as as a church planting strategy. Um, That's how I'm going to talk about this at least, um, and you all are welcome to argue with me later. But I believe what he's doing is he's teaching a sort of church planting strategy, okay? Rather than jumping around from place to place, Jesus is telling his disciples as they go to choose a place wisely and set up a sort of base of operations, Rather than trying to make a thousand converts, what Jesus is telling them is go to this person of peace, make a convert out of them, make a disciple out of them, help them to grow, and teach them to run the ministry in that place. Okay, Teach them to make converts. Teach them to make disciples. And it's funny, it's almost like that, that same strategy has been played out before because as Jesus goes around, he doesn't go out and spend the majority of his time with the crowds. Now, certainly Jesus preaches to the crowds. There are places where we see Jesus preach to thousands. But the majority of Jesus' ministry isn't spent with the thousands. The majority of Jesus' ministry is spent with 12. With 12 men. And if you want to dial in even further, he spends even more of his time with specifically three of those 12. Yeah, Jesus dials in and he makes disciples out of a few who then are told to go and make disciples out of more who then are to go out and make disciples out of more. And I hope you see how this trends. It's multiplication. It's not simple addition. Like, oh, we're going to add 5,000 here today and then I'm going to go and I'm going to add 5,000 more over there. That's not what Jesus does. He says, I'm going to multiply into these 12 or 3, whichever way you want to go. And then those people are to go out and they're to multiply and they're to multiply and they're to multiply. Over and over and over. And this is how Jesus sees the church growing. So as he tells them to go to a house and remain there, what he's saying is go and disciple that household. Teach that household. Build them up and teach them how to go and make disciples around them. And then they will in turn make disciples. This is what Jesus is setting up. And in many ways, like I told you, this is 
the goal of the modern church planting movement. Instead of missionaries making a thousand converts, they make a few and let them then make converts out of the other indigenous people. So when you enter a town and they welcome you, he says, eat the things set before you. Not only is Jesus teaching them to be content with what they have, but he's also teaching them what they receive. They need to, receive, they need to see it as the, the wages that are due them for their work, not as charity. Like most of us, we think of, well, I'm receiving charity, and it's almost got this nasty connotation to it. Like, but that's not, what, that's not what Jesus says. He says, as you're doing this work, receive it as the wages that are owed to you for the labor that you're putting in. You're doing an important work, so see it properly. Now... The reason I want to talk about this so much is I think that this has tremendous ramifications for the way that we support missions. Not just missions abroad, but also missions locally. How, what is our strategy? What are we looking at? Now, I'll be honest with you, over the last year and a half, things have kind of been awkward when you start talking about, especially overseas missions, because you all know COVID-19 is a thing. So, I mean... It makes it kind of complicated. But as we look at overseas missions, as we look at even domestic missions, we need to start considering, are we using the strategy? Are we using the wisdom that Jesus taught us as he sent his disciples out? So this does have application for the way that we consider missions, the way we think about missions, especially as a church. So we need to be effective in evangelism by using the wisdom God has given us here in the scripture. And we need to understand what divine provision looks like, both in the person of peace and the wages offered to the one who's sharing. So, effective evangelism requires apostolic appointment, penetrating prayer, definite discernment, divine provision, and fifth, effective evangelism requires pointed proclamation. Pointed proclamation. So he says, in verse 9, he says, Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, this is a point that I want to be very careful on. Very, very careful on. Okay? So I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to answer them to hopefully make my position clear. Do I think that God still uses the healing of sick in evangelism? When it comes to evangelism, the answer is yes, I do. I think he does. I've heard entirely too many eyewitness testimonies of people who say that they have gone and they've seen miraculous things happen. I've heard way too many. And you know what? I've prayed for too many people who have been healed, and doctors say there's no explanation for this. I've, I've seen it happen too many times to say no to that question. Do I believe that God still uses the healing of the sick? Yes, absolutely I do. But do I think the physical healing is necessary as part of proclamation? I don't think it's necessary, no. I don't. We need to understand that this is a particular command given to a particular people in a particular time in a particular place. And I hope you see all the particulars there because I really try to emphasize them. Like this is very contextualized. And they, they did not have the benefit that we do. We are after the cross. We are after the resurrection. They needed to see something. A lot of these people needed to say, okay, how do we know that there's healing? How do we know that there's life in Jesus? How can we know that the kingdom's come near? So yeah, they're in a particular place. You know how we can say that we know that? It's because there's an empty tomb that Jesus used to be laid in. We know that he has power over life because he was raised from the dead. Okay? So, we have the benefit of the resurrection. So, do I think it's necessary? No, I don't. Do I think it's possible? Absolutely, I do. Now, one thing I think hasn't changed, and that is what they were to proclaim. That's the kingdom of God coming near. That didn't change, and it's not going to change. 
If Jesus has taken up residence in your heart, first of all, that's pretty near. So you have the kingdom of God. Well, you have the king of the kingdom of God literally living in you. So that's pretty stinking close. All right. So the welcome, the one who welcomes comes and welcomes the ambassador. And they proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. But then here's the point inside. We get to verse 10, verses 10 through 12. And I just want to read these real quick. And then uh, I'm just about done. So stay with me. Beginning of verse 10, it says, When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, We are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Now, the town changed and the tone changed a little bit. The proclamation didn't. Notice that the proclamation to the person of peace was that the kingdom of God has come near. You know what the proclamation to the people who reject that is? The kingdom of God has come near. Yeah, it's not that that difficult, really. It's the kingdom of God coming near. That hasn't changed at all. The proclamation has stayed the same. But notice that Jesus doesn't pull any punches with him either. Doesn't pull it back at all. He says, I want you to make clear, clear the ramifications of their decision. Make it as clear as you can. He says, make it clear that a denial of this kingdom in Jesus coming as the Messiah, that means complete destruction. Complete devastation. He says it's going to be worse than Sodom. God rained down sulfur on Sodom. It's going to be worse for that town. He says, go out into the streets that reject you. Go out into the city streets and wipe off the dust, showing that you have no place with them, that you are set apart, that you're completely different. You don't want anything from them. Go out and say, listen, you're, you're going to suffer divine judgment. It requires pointed proclamation. So what? Well, I think we also need to be as clear as we possibly can. So I'm going to do my best just to be clear with you all right now. Death apart from salvation in Jesus means eternal destruction for you. I want to be as clear as possible that this is not a scare tactic. This is not a dramatic effect kind of thing. This is telling you that God's word says that hell is a reality. Hell is a real place. And I'm afraid that far too many well-meaning, moral people that we would say are good people maybe even good church-going folks. I'm afraid that far too many of them are going to spend eternity in this place. I want to be very clear about that. A rejection of Jesus and his declaration of the coming kingdom means eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Jesus was clear, I can't do better than him. The Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, shows us that all men are sinners. All men are sinners. Every single one of you. Me, you, person sitting next to you, and you might be thinking the person sitting next to me is a worse sinner. Truth is, you are a sinner. You are a sinner. And one sin before an infinitely and perfectly holy God means that you are guilty of sin, which means, by the way, you know how much one inch short of, an infinity, of infinity is? Anybody? You want to take a stab? The answer is infinity. Like, it never stops. It's an infinite gap. One inch short of infinite is still infinitely short. Y'all picking up on that? I know that's kind of a thinker, but that's infinitely short. 
One sin means that you are infinitely short of God's standard. And the consequence of being short of that standard is eternity separated from God in this place we just talked about called hell. But God, God didn't like that. So you know what he did? He said, I'm going to do something about it. And he said, you know what? I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send Jesus, and he's going to go, and he's going to live a perfect life. He's going to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the human's sin. And on the third day, he's going to be raised from the dead to prove that he won the victory over death and hell and sin. And then just to prove that he showed up, you know what he did? He appeared to oh, more than 500 people. He showed up. He showed himself. And he says that by faith in him, you can be forgiven of that one inch too short that you are. You can be forgiven. You can be made right. You don't have to spend eternity in hell. You can spend eternity with the God of the universe. You can be given life. I believe that's what it means whenever Jesus says to go and proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. That Jesus, the king of this coming kingdom, is here. So, I'm going to be very simple in the way I want to finish this up today. I've got just a few things I want to ask you and a quote, and then I'm done. But my first question is, are you a part of that kingdom that Jesus came to declare? Are you a part of that kingdom? I don't think there's a more important question I can ask you than do you have faith in Jesus? Like, have you trusted in him? And if you are then, my question is, are you sharing that? Because I told you we need to have a love for one another. Well, how loving is it whenever your neighbor is going to spend eternity in hell and you don't have the guts to tell them that they could be saved from that. Like, share the good news of the kingdom. We've been given the awesome task of being ambassadors of Jesus. What are you going to do with that task? Last quote, and then I'm done. It was from D.L. Moody. Um, He received some criticism regarding his method of evangelism. Um, And people saying, well, maybe that's not the best way to do this. Maybe you could do this better this way or that way. And here's what Moody said in response. He said, It is clear you do not like my way of doing evangelism. You raise some good points. Frankly, I sometimes do not like my way of doing evangelism, but I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I I thank you for this word from, from Luke. God, I thank you for this word from this gospel. Father, and I, I just thank you for, for the calling that you've placed on my life and the lives of many in this room. So, Father, I, I want to pray what you told us to pray. And I, I want to ask, Lord, that you would send workers out into the harvest. Um, we recognize you are the Lord of the harvest. And we come to you today saying, Father, send workers. Um, Lord, I've been saying, telling people for years that I believe that we're on the brink of revival, and I don't believe that's any less true today than it was two years ago. Father, I believe that we are on the brink of just a real awakening. Um, Father, I, I'm not trying to say anything prophetic. I'm not trying to say anything I don't know. I just have a feeling. So, God, I pray. I pray, first of all, that that would be true, that we would be on the brink of revival. And, Father, I pray that you would send workers out into that harvest. Father, send people out with your good news to prepare the way for you as you go. Lord, we recognize that we can't change a single soul. We can't change a heart, but we can prepare the way for you. So, Father, let us be faithful as your ambassadors. Let us be faithful as your authorized representatives. Let us be faithful with the great commission that you've given to your church. And let us go and make disciples, Father. We pray that you would make it powerful, you would make it effective as you go with us through the power of your Holy Spirit. So, God, um, we thank you. 
We thank you for sending workers. We thank you for the work you're doing. Lord, lastly, I just want to ask that if there's a person who doesn't know the hope of Jesus, I pray that they would today. God, I pray that you would come. Um, I pray that you would make your word effective and that we would see people changed for all eternity, that people would come to know your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your love for them. Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing. I'd invite you all to stand with me. And if you would like to respond to God's word, whether you know Jesus or not, I would invite you to come as we sing. together. Father, we thank you so much for the calling you've placed on our lives. Father, I pray that the world around us would know what we just sang, that we are Christians, and I pray that they would know that by our love. God, I thank you for the calling you've placed. I pray that you would send us out. Lord, let our, let our proclamation, let the evangelism that goes on be effective. Father, let us be faithful servants. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.